We're going to continue worship with a reading from the Gospel of Mark. And then we'll stay standing for prayer. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence here in this room, that we enter into something you have already been doing this morning. No effort on our part can halt the work that you're doing in here. Jesus, what a gift it is to say your name, to think about you and to read your words, as harsh as they may sound or seem. So we ask you, Lord, would you reveal your heart to us this morning? Would you let us enter more deeply into the the places in you that um, you want us to see and know, to know the full extent of who you are, what your love means for us and for the world? We ask for your grace this morning. We ask for um, your clarity of words, Holy Spirit. Would you make us into the kinds of people that you long for us to be? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ginny. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmanuel, and it's so good to be with you this morning and see all of your lovely faces. I'm so just delighted to be here week after week with you. It's been so good. Uh, So we're still in the Gospel of Mark, plugging right along, and uh, this text really goes off of kind of where we were last week, so I'll catch you up just very quickly if you weren't able to be with us last Sunday. The text right before this that we looked at last week is where Jesus explains that he must suffer and die and be resurrected, and it pushes his disciples into a a weird place. Um, Instead of after hearing that from Jesus, talking about what it might mean to follow him to the cross, what it might mean that Jesus was about to do all these things, Instead, they decide to argue about who is the best, who's the greatest among them, which is a very strange place to go, and yet is, um, I think, very common for us when we get into these strange places to um, surround ourselves with conversations and things about how stable we are and how great our life is, and we kind of you know, pull optimism in in that way. 
So we see here again the same kind of thing. It's a little bit different now, but it's a similar moment that's happening here where, where Jesus is um, trying to explain what it looks like to, to follow him, and yet the disciples are really, really concerned about themselves, about their own greatness. And in this case, in this text, what it looks like in here is, is that they're trying to delineate who's in and who's out. So they may not be saying, you know, I'm better than you, other disciple. They're not doing that, but they're using now like a theological argument. Like, well, this guy's not with following us. He's not as close to you as we are, Jesus. So he's got to be wrong. Um, we've got to be the us, and they've got to be the them in this scenario. And what I find interesting that's happening in these portions of text is that we all know, you know, if, if you've been in the church for any amount of time or read the Bible throughout your life, you know that the Pharisees are the bad guys, you know, they're, they're the ones that Jesus is, is fighting against, um, or at least that's what we tell ourselves. And yet what we find in these last few stories, and in a lot of the stories in the Gospels, is that the disciples start to be the ones that Jesus um, is, is the most challenged by, that he has to lead the most, that the Pharisees are kind of more peripheral, more um, outsiders um, to what he's saying, and that his heart is actually focused towards his disciples. And if we don't think about that, I think when we go to a text like this, when we hear the harsh words that Jesus has to say to his disciples, I think we can kind of lose the point of what he's saying here. It's not that he doesn't care about the Pharisees. He does. He loves them. But right now, his greatest challenge is focused towards his disciples because they seem to be the ones who are supposed to understand and are misunderstanding the most for him. Jesus is getting more urgent. He's getting more descriptive. In the same way that kind of when things get real in your life or the way that people sometimes say all of their things they've been hiding on their deathbed, you know, Jesus knows his death is coming and so he's getting more and more urgent about what it looks like to be a disciple. He's like, no more seed parables here, you know, like now we're moving towards purely things like amputations. This is a Jesus who's very feeling very, very urgent right now, more descriptive. So, of all the lessons Jesus is teaching his disciples, none of it is about personal piety for piety's sake. It's all about the sake of the community and loving others. Jesus is saying things like, if you want to be first, you must become last of all and servant of all. Our piety and our holiness, we're finding out through the teachings of Jesus, is not for our sake, but for the sake of our brother and our sister. These two sections today communicate two really vitally important lessons in the life of discipleship of understanding what it actually means to be a follower of Christ. And they feel like they're kind of contradictory. They may even push against one another. And I, probably what you'll find today, and this is what I found, is that you'll, you'll be able to place yourself in one camp more than the other. And if you do that, then hear the other lesson and maybe let yourself be pulled in towards that direction. You know what I mean? Um, so what we're going to see today is these two different kinds of pictures that Jesus gives us. This first section is um, what I'm calling wide grace. Jesus is inviting us into the wideness of his grace, of who he is. And the second thing we see is Jesus' intolerance to sin, what I'm calling deep holiness on this other side. So these two things that may seem to be contradictory and that we, we have even like started church, churches over pulling these two things apart from one another. Jesus is saying these two things go together in the life of a disciple. And then we have this third section about fire and salt. Um, and what I think this last section does is kind of ties these two together. So we're going to look at the first part together, the wide grace. And I'll say a little bit more about what I mean by that in a minute, but let's go through the text first. So John, one of Jesus' disciples, is tattling, is what we're seeing in this beginning of this text. He says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
So the disciples are doing the same thing here that they were doing before in order to gain a sense of power and control. Uh, one of our natural tendencies is to create, is to have an us versus them mentality. And that's exactly what his disciples are doing right now. Like, okay, if, well, we can't, dis- can't argue about how, who's greater, then we're just going to create camps. Like we're going to say we're all greater than these people who are doing these things. I'm more great and more right if someone else is less great and more wrong. And so that thing that we naturally do in ourselves that we've seen in our culture so much recently, those things are old. Those are old things that humans do. And it's really natural in us, and we have to fight against that tendency in us. That's one of the things Jesus is saying is the cost of discipleship. So what does Jesus actually say to this mentality? I think this is one of the most interesting texts in the whole Bible, and Jesus says a lot of, a lot of interesting things in this moment. So here's the first interesting thing he says. Do not stop him. For no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. What I think Jesus is telling us to do in this moment is to release control over someone else's perspective of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to follow Jesus. And our first, you know, instinct to that is like, well, who's going to defend you, Jesus? Like, who's going to defend you on behalf of, of yourself in the world? Like, who's going to battle in this cultural moment that we're living through? I need to say what the true thing about Jesus is. I need to, like, say I'm this or that or I believe this or that, and that's going to defend Jesus for him. And what Jesus is telling us, and I think we, a lesson we all ought to live into and learn more, and I know that I need to, is that there is power in the name of Jesus, that there's something just about his name that will draw people into him, into what they are meant to be drawn into in him. In other words, Jesus says, no one who does a deed of power in my name will soon be able afterwards to speak evil of me. He's saying, my name is more powerful than anyone's inclination to use it falsely. And that's just true. And we need to sit with that this morning. I have needed to sit with that this week, that Jesus's name is more powerful than anything that I could defend anything that I could hold on to as the more right thing, anything I could make an us and them out of. Jesus is saying here that his name transforms hearts. His name overcomes. His name speaks truth. And this doesn't mean that people don't need to be held accountable for the ways they use their status or their words on behalf of Jesus. People absolutely do need that. This is about us as a community holding one another accountable for ways of thinking about Jesus that holds no room for error, no room for grace. This is where we've come to as a society, as Christians, to say someone else is so very wrong and I am so very right and there's no room for anything in between. I believe it's a prophetic move of the church right now to broaden our ecumenical view of the world, to be supportive where we might be critical naturally. This is the wide grace. So a, f- a couple weekends ago, I did a wedding, um, and it was a room full of Protestants. And I don't say that like it's a negative thing. It's just that's just what it was, uh, kind of like the spectrum. So there was like some very serious Pentecostals in the room. Um, I got a lot of amens, which was really good for me. So if you are a little bit charismatic, this is your invitation. Um, 
there was some charismatics. There was some uh, people who self-described Calvinists in the room. There was um, some Southern Baptists. So there was just kind of the, the full gambit, and, and me as, a, as an Anglican um, felt a little nervous, and especially as a lady. And so I, um, I, I gave the sermon that I felt I was called to give um, and uh, led, led the service, and it went okay. But I was, found myself to be really deeply anxious about the eyes that were on me in that moment and like the, the poking of what I might say that's theologically different from everyone else in the room. And I kind of carried that anxiety with me into the reception. And then about halfway through, uh, an older gentleman came up to me, which at weddings, y'all, as a, as a lady priest, is my worst nightmare. <laughs> and I'll tell you later some of the questions I've gotten. But... Um, so he, he bends down next to me and he says, that was great. What church do you go to? Where do you work? And I told him, and he said he is, um, he, he's a pastor. He's been a longtime pastor at a church, charismatic church, a church I would probably never attend. Um, and, and yet he you know, kneeled down to me and, and complimented me and said that he like, met the Lord through what I said. And when I told him what church I went to, he said, oh, Anglicans. And I like braced myself and he said, there's so much good coming out of the Anglican church. And I was like healed in that moment. The anxiety that I had felt, the like tightness that I had in my body sort of released. What power, you guys, that we all have to, to bring in people who aren't like us, to bring in people who maybe have different theological understandings than us, rather than create, continue to push people out and create these camps to say, wow, well, I've heard such good things that come out of your church. It was just such a good moment, a healing moment, and such an invitation, I think, from Jesus in this story to say, that can be you. You can say, whoever is not against us is for us. And even if they feel like they might be against us, perhaps the name of Jesus can do more than, than you think that you can do in your arguing, in your creating camps. I've um, spent a lot of time in my life being a sort of fire and brimstone person. Um, my dad is sort of Buddhist, and my mom is like sort of spiritual, like in the Oprah way. And so, <laughs> so my personal rebellion was fundamentalism, and um, <laughs> as it goes. And, um, and so I, I love holiness and justice, you know, like those things come really naturally for me and I can forsake um, love for those things a lot of times. So this first part of the text is for those of you who are like me. Um, the thing I sat with all week and the warning I feel like I received from God in this text is that I don't want to spend my life underestimating the saving power of Jesus, underestimating the power in his name. What a, what a sad thing to come to the end of your life and just have created camps. So to have pushed out the, the saving grace of Jesus on behalf of him, it's not what he's asking us to do. All right, deep holiness. All this talk of millstones around people's necks and amputating parts that cause us to sin is a disturbing thing to think about and read about on a Sunday morning. Um, and so I think there are a few things that are worth noting here. Jesus uses language here that I'm not sure he'd use in a big crowd. What we see when, have, when Jesus has crowds around him is like mass feedings, you know? He's not saying things like cut out your eyeball to the big groups. He is saying this to the small group of his followers. 
He's guiding them to the cross. He's saying this to an intimate group of people. So if you're trying to say these things to someone who may not be a Christian, this is probably not what Jesus would do even himself. He would only say these things to the ones who are closest to him. Jesus' grace is wide, but his insistence upon sanctification for his followers is, is very deep. Specifically here around sin that causes the vulnerable to stumble. When he says little ones, we know from last week that this is likely kids that he's talking about. The, the importance of what it means to follow, to have people follow you who are younger than you and the leadership, the importance of that leadership. But also I think what he's talking about here when he says little ones, based on the previous text we read just before this, is this idea of people who are in the like them camp, whoever that would be in your life, may be little ones. Even if they seem like really powerful people, if you, if you can easily create kind of a divide between you and them, maybe those are the people that you're meant to love and to shepherd in the way that Jesus does with his disciples. The power you have as a leader, as a parent, as a human being is a life and death matter, Jesus is saying. The holiness of God is such that it would burn away all the power that doesn't create and enact justice in the world, that doesn't move toward the vulnerable, that doesn't protect those who have no protection, Jesus here is talking about leadership that gains power for itself rather than sacrifices its wholeness for the well-being of the community. And there's just no room for that in his kingdom, he's saying. There's no room for self-seeking power in his kingdom. And just, Jesus desperately wants us in his kingdom. And so what he tells us here is like, if it's a matter of your arm in my kingdom, choose the kingdom. Figure out what it is and what you have to remove in your own life in order to be in my kingdom with me, in order to come alongside me and follow me to the cross. While I don't think Jesus is being literal necessarily here in terms of body parts, I do think he's being literal in this sort of act and how painful it might be for some of us to begin to follow him to the cross. The two kind of examples that I feel like sat with me this week that I thought a lot about was the first one is that some of us need to get off social media. And that may seem like not a big deal, but the fact that like so many of us would probably say like absolutely not to that should like, you know, ring a bell in our heads. It's part of my livelihood, you might say. Then yeah, it would hurt to cut it off, wouldn't it? And I'm not saying it's inherently bad or wrong. I personally had to get off social media for this very reason. It caused me to sin. And after years of that, you guys, I read a text like this and said, okay, this is, um, this is the arm for me, you know? This is the thing that I get to cut off in order to follow Jesus more closely to the cross. And I still get on sometimes and immediately sin. <laughs> so it's a reminder to me that this is not a place that I can go and be a more loving person. So we must cut those things off. The second example that came to my mind this week was that some of us need more accountability with our money or even just to give money away. So I ask you, is your money causing you to sin? What would it look like for you to, to give it away, to cut something off? Maybe get a smaller house or a 1997 Honda Accord hatchback, you know? <laughs> and this is all very countercultural, countercultural to our age of ethical individualism. It shouldn't be shocking or offensive to say that our actions have moral consequences for others, that how we use, accumulate, and spend money has moral consequences in the world. And so I think what Jesus is telling us here is it's not just our politics and policies that matter, 
Our sexual habits matter to our communities. It's not just who we elect, but who we are, how we spend our money, how honest we are, how we use what we've been given. All of these things matter to the people around you. They will make you love the people around you better. That's what holiness is for. The people of God in the Old Testament were meant to be holy so that they could be a blessing to those around them. Our holiness is never just for us. Jesus' grace for the world is wider than we can imagine, and his desire for our personal holiness is deeper than we're comfortable with. And if you ask me, this is why Christianity is so compelling. This last part here, Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. The loving judgment of God is the great equalizer among us. It raises up the lowly and it brings down those who are lifted up. The loving judgment of God is here for us, refining even now. The judgment of Jesus is here today if we would receive it. So many of us have been taught that it's this one great end moment for us. And in reality, I think that if it's one moment for Jesus, if it's this great thing that he's going to do at some point, he's likely doing it now. And if it's good, then it just is who he is. So what parts of us could end up standing before his judgment now? Like, how can we open ourselves up to the the judgment of Jesus even now to become more like him? John the Baptist said, I came to baptize you with water, but Jesus is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this fire, I believe, comes out of his heart, comes out of the love that is most deeply within him, the places that love the most is where this kind of fire of holiness, this fire of judgment comes out of that that's where the sanctification process happens for you and for me. It's out of the love and fire in his heart. And this text tells us that this baptism of fire will make us salty. When we let the Spirit purify us of our us versus them mentalities, when we let the Spirit illuminate and burn away habits and practices, practices that turn us inward towards ourselves, he will make us into what Jesus longs for us to be, salt something that makes everything around us better, that preserves the goodness in the world, in his kingdom. It enables us to be truly at peace with one another, the text says. I spent a lot of my early years as a Christian believing that if I figured out how to be the most holy version of myself, the most pious version of myself, if I put myself more and more in the us crowd, if I read enough books to make sure I was in that camp, that I would finally like make God happy with who I was. That if I cut out all the bad habits in my life that made me less self-developed, if I became more and more mature for my own sake, I would make God happy. And Jesus is saying to his closest companions, of which I think you and I get to now be a part because we're reading this all together as if he's saying it to us. Don't miss who I am. Don't miss the wideness of my grace. And don't miss the importance of holiness in your own life. My grace is not for the sake of happiness and personal freedom. And your holiness is not for the sake of personal piety. It's all for love's sake. Always for Jesus. That's always what it comes back to. That's always what it's about. Holiness for the sake of love. Grace for the sake of love always bringing us more deeply into his heart. Amen. Psalm 12 says, Because the poor are despoiled 
because the needy groan, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which they long. The promises of the Lord are promises that are pure. Silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Even God's own promises go through the fire in the heart of Jesus. All God's promises are yes in him. There is this uh, image in the Catholic Church, the sacred heart of Jesus. Um, And I have been sitting with this image a lot over the last few months. Um, Even bought a print for my house that shows it. uh, Because it was so helpful for me to see um, this this image of his heart and where the fire of his his love and his judgment lies is all in this this middle space, um, this place in his heart. And so this morning, wherever you are on the spectrum of the things that we talked about, it's in this this heart um, where Jesus wants to purify you and take you to the places where you need to go in Him and in His life. Um, So God bless you. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you need prayer, we'll be up here at the front to pray for you. And if not, God bless you. We'll see you next week. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.